FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to Castaway, FIS's freight and commodity podcast. It's Wednesday, the 28th of April. Hazy morning this morning, Kerry. Hazy. Exactly. Uh, exactly. We obviously have Kerry joining me, and Kerry, we have a special guest, don't we? We do indeed. We have Andrew Glass, who we've known for some time through his work uh, as founder and MD of Avatar Commodities. Uh, however, uh, in the context of today's podcast, he'll be joining us in his role as head of sales and partnerships for Viridios Capital uh, to discuss their work in uh, in carbon offsets and the emissions offset markets. So excited to uh, to have that conversation. Thanks. We're going to do our main markets, news, indexes, a little bit of in-depth analysis on our main markets there, and then really start to nail down on carbon emissions trading and with respect specifically to the shipping industry. Precisely. Let's dive in. In terms of this week, there's been a shocking rise in cases of COVID-19 in in India uh, as hospitals struggle with many running low on oxygen supplies. This week, President Biden is expected to propose a further $1.5 trillion in spending on education and childcare initiatives, paid for by a string of tax increases on the wealthy. Italy's PM sets out his 246 billion euro recovery plan. The UK forecast output growth rate to be its highest since 1989 after it crashed in its largest drop in 300 years in 2020. And the EU is to sue AstraZeneca over its vaccine supply shortfall. Let's look at some of the indexes that we've had week on week, Tuesday to Tuesday. Uh, Brent hardly moving, 65.85 minus 0.8%. Uh, the ROT 3.5% and the Sing 380, the high sulfur fuel oils, both off marginally just over 1%, 360.70 and 371.70 respectively. They're the 0.5s, the very low sulfur fuel oils, down even uh, lower amount, um, 0.8%, 0.4% respectively, 460.68 and 483.43. And the high fives hardly moved as well. 100, rot high five closing, and the sing high five, 112. Uh, Kerry, freight, what are we seeing? Rather chunky move on the Cape size 5TC average, uh, marked at 37,453 yesterday. That's a rise of 8,801 or 30.7% week on week. The Panamax 4TC, much flatter, uh, sitting at 21,613 yesterday. That is down $61 or 0.2%. On the iron ore, uh, only ever seems to move one direction these days. <laughs> the 62% was uh, 187.75 last week, now 193.85. That's a rise of $6.10 or 3.2% week on week. Whereas the metal bulletin 65% uh, was at 222.80, now 227.80. So a jump of $5 or 2.2% on the 65% grade. And to round off the indexes with the tankers, TC2 down 12%, closing 112.5, down 6% on the TC5, 104.29, minus 1.8 on the TD3C, the VLs, 34.21, and TD25 down 9%, 82.91. And to start with the most boring, I guess, market of this week <laughs> is oil, which has decided it's going to take a pause for a week after all those uh, moves that we had the week before, a lot of speculation about what's going on, all the new forecasts coming out. Time to take a breath. Exactly. So really not much going on. We've It's so little is going on, even OPEC decided to cancel its meeting that it was supposed to have this week. <laughs> so all that anticipation of the market, thinking about what's going to happen, what's going to be said, what they're going to be doing, and now they've moved that 
uh, dates into a proposed late May or early June uh, that there's going to be rescheduling that OPEC meeting. So a lot of this has been, there has been some negative movement in the middle of the week. A lot of that was basis uh, concern about the the situation in India, obviously a large oil consumer, yeah. uh, diversifying its its oil imports um, more recently. So that is obviously a big hit in terms of that. And then maybe some knock through onto some of the tanker routes as well later on. We're seeing cases reach their 350,000 in a single 24-hour period. So really quite a, a bad situation there uh, for, for India. But um, in terms of flat price and fuel, really quite flat. We have seen a weakening of the high sulfur fuel oil crack, though. Minus 790 it was, and it's moved much, uh, quite significantly lower, the fact that nothing else has moved to minus 850. So EIA last week, so that came out just after we did the podcast last week. Um, again, that was flat, uh, predicting, well, it showed a, a very small uh, rise in uh, crude levels, very small 0.1 million barrels uh, of gasoline, minus 1.1 of distillate, so really quite flat there in terms of levels. A little bit more movement is predicted this week, though, with the API saying uh, up 4.32 million barrels predicted. So we could see a bit more action later on this week, uh, sorry, later on today when that um, comes out. Um, Fogos, there's been a bit of action, uh, both Singapore and Rotterdam weakening a bit, um, around about $2.50 from Monday's levels. Uh, opening today, minus 37.75 on the Singapore and minus 66 on the ROT. Also seeing a weakening of that east-west. That's the difference between Singapore and Rotterdam prices softening uh, towards the end of this month with a differential of minus 6.5 today. But yeah, not too much happening. Definitely more eyes are turning towards May and June when those that rescheduled OPEC meetings going to be coming online. But uh, Kerry, why don't you tell us about what's happening with the big mover of the week in terms of Cape size, 30.7%. Yeah. Well, the Cape size market has certainly regained the drama, some might say the directional lead from the smaller ships. Uh, In a market described as violently bullish by our own brokers, uh, the Capes have only gained more and more confidence over the past week. The most jarring rises took place late last week on the physical as the Brazilian miners went shopping for mid-May dates on the C3 Brazil-China route. One large miner reputedly taking up to eight vessels in one day last Wednesday. Uh, The Australians didn't hold back either. Uh, The spot time charter average crossing $30,000 last Wednesday triggered a massive burst of confidence that has yet to die away. Paper rates have predictably soared on the nearby, although I do feel duty-bound to point out that the front month has actually moved less than the spot, unusually. Um, with the May closing at 38700 last night, up about $5,000 week on week, um, while the Q3 has pushed to $29,000 at the close yesterday, up $1,500 week on week. The Panamaxes a touch more confused. Uh, despite the action on the big ships and despite moderately positive physical sentiment in both basin, basins, uh, a, a very sharp sell-off on Wednesday and Thursday last week sapped confidence away uh, on the physical, um, which was uh, a case a bit of the tail wagging the dog, I suppose you could say, um, and quickly saw that chartering activity slow. The index dipped in response in both basins, and despite a more positive start to the week in the Pacific, where no pack rounds seem to be in demand, East Coast South America still seems to be oversupplied with balusters. Uh, paper is taking a slightly more optimistic view, uh, presumably led by the Capes, and the May regained some substantial ground yesterday to close at 23,375 on the 4TC yesterday. That's about $750 below the close of a week before. 
while Q3 was trading $20,000 at the close yesterday, about $400 above the week before. Just quickly on the tanker side, last week we did see pressure building on that MR Atlantic basket uh, as fuel derivatives fell in both directions, seeing the US Gulf Coast exports to the continent at three-year lows. A lack of of cargoes and lengthening lists is really starting to put pressure on those TC2, TC14 routes. Uh, TC2 showed some good volatility in rates though last week with spot down 21% and May paper futures down 15% week on week. Um, this week, we are seeing wet FFA trading volume significantly picking up uh, and the market is starting to feel a lot more alive with US consumer confidence levels at 14 months high and summer gasoline activity looking better than expected. Uh, the US truckers, the busiest they've been in years. So not so distant future look kind of promising for, for oil products uh, with the US soon to kick off its consumption. Uh, this will bring to life, I guess, what a market has been hammered recently. So some things definitely to <laughs> exactly. watch on that US market. But Kerry, round us off with the iron ore. Well, those high steel mill margins we have been commenting on in recent weeks have continued to give this market an extraordinary, even unlikely level of support. Um, although the spot index rose a mere uh, 3.2% over the past week, this was in the face of production curbs already enacted in Tangshan region and proposed now in Jiangsu province also. Uh, these production curbs are for the moment acting in a, in a converse fashion. They're lifting the finished steel futures in China and in turn, people seem to be focusing solely on that and buying up the iron ore futures on the back of that. Needless to say, I am not going to be the one to call a top to this market, particularly not when Chinese average mill margins remain well over 1,100 renminbi per metric ton. Having said that, we are entering territory where I think we should point out political involvement may become a reality. The state-backed CISA has called for a government intervention to curb the iron ore spike. And with government attention now focused on the issue, it wouldn't be too surprising to see some cooling measures taken on the domestic futures markets to try and discourage speculation. So watch this space. And then to move on to our main feature, of course, is shipping emissions and carbon trading, of course. Um, I thought it'd be good to start with some kind of overview of the market before coming to you, Andrew, about some more specifics and how things actually work. And then we'll kind of move on to some more questions. So for those who want to kind of quantify the market. This is something which started in 1997, Kyoto Protocol, uh, where the IMO was told to kind of address greenhouse gases coming from international shipping. And to give a context to how large that is, if you look at the fourth IMO greenhouse gas report, you can see that in 2018, global shipping emissions have increased from 977 million tons in 2012 to just over a billion tons in 2018. And then to put that in context of global emissions outside of shipping, as a percentage of 2018 world emissions, shipping was 2.89% of the 36.5 billion tons globally uh, emitted. Um, some good news, though, just to context of what's happening, efficiency has increased. So although we have had more shipping, more product moved, we are actually at 90% of 2008 levels, uh, but that is predicted to rise to 130% by 2050 and something which is going to be have to be dealt with. But Andrew, I wanted to kind of bring you in and talk about kind of carbon emissions trading. You know, if someone has no idea about what this market is, you know, how do people trade it? Why do they use it? And what are we looking for in these kind of pricing elements of it? Okay, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to join you on the podcast. Um, 
Look, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the first and foremost thing that we need to put out there is that it's a matter of addressing, and any industry for this matter, it's a matter of addressing your carbon footprint within your own operations, your own logistics, your own operations, to make sure you are tracking towards um, preferably a commitment that you've made. Um, we're seeing many companies making commitments for net zero um, to varying degrees, 2030, 2040, 2050. Um, and tracking that, that evolution, most industries, most companies are not able to get rid of all of the carbon emissions within their um, business and infrastructure. So that's where, so as an adjunct to addressing your own emissions and reducing carbon footprint, that's where the voluntary carbon market comes in. Um, and the carbon markets, well, our interest really is in price transparency around the voluntary carbon markets. You have other regulated markets, and I suppose the most, the one that's front and foremost for most shipping organisations right now, and anyone exposed to, to freight, is the EUA market. So if you deliver any any product on a ship into the EUA market, uh, into the EU market uh, after the start of next year, you'll be subject to equalising your carbon footprint using the EUA. Now that's currently trading around 45 euros per tonne of carbon um, on that market. And if you take a, for ease of numbers, 200,000 tonne vessel loaded full of iron ore, leaves Brazil, heads to Europe, discharges, ballasts back, you're talking around 150,000 US dollars to offset using the EUA market, your your carbon footprint, um, just for the freight component. Now, that's let alone the cargo that's on it. So this is this is real. That's the EUA market, um, and that's somewhat ring fenced. We're looking at the the voluntary carbon market and price transparency there, which is a lot broader. And this is part of something which we had a brief discussion before we started this podcast talking about. This is not the kind of end game of it. Oh, I've done my carbon emissions. That's that's it. This is part and parcel of a much wider program of technological development, decarbonizing generally. Uh, as well as using emissions, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is as we said earlier, it's an adjunct. If you were to continue to operate as usual, for example, um, and continue to emit the same amount of carbon and do nothing, and think that you can turn around and use the voluntary carbon market or the offsets market to neutralise your footprint, you'll be sorely mistaken, and you will suffer significantly um, in the marketplace, whether it be investors. Um, stakeholders, NGOs will call you out for greenwashing. Um, and that's been a... Yeah, and I think that, that's important to know. This is not a method of facilitating greenwashing. This is, and that, and that is not something that's a sustainable strategy for any business, right? Yeah, spot on. Look, I mean, if, if you, uh, I use a simple numerical example. If you're emitting 100 units of carbon today, you track yourself through to a commitment of net zero by 2040, for argument's sake. You have like 18 years to get that down. You, you have a program to get that down, you're unlikely to get to net zero. If you still have a residual of 25 units at the end of that time, you'll need to look at the offset market um, to mitigate that. And that's a very diverse market. It's been in the voluntary carbon market. The, the problem statement to which Viridius Capital addresses is the lack of transparency in that market. Um, it's very opaque. Most transactions are OTC, bilateral, under NDA, so it's very hard to understand what the market's actually worth, make your budget and make your planning. We've looked at that and we've developed AI technology to effectively learn the taxonomy and the valuation of those markets. So we're about to release in partnership with Platts, um, probably likely to be six indexes 
which are going to give a whole new level of transparency to the voluntary carbon market for participants. Well, I mean, I, I was just about to ask you, and this probably answers part of that question, that, you know, this obviously, your AI technology obviously allows you to originate such structures. So with these indices, do you see this being a part of a more standardized potential market for these products? Or, uh, uh, or do you see this being sort of a more bespoke basis uh, ongoing uh, in, in terms of what you're doing through Viridias? Well, I mean, knowing your guys' history and also many of your listeners in the commodity space, um, you'll probably be happy to hear that we, we envisage, and most of you will have experienced, the evolution of different markets. Um, you start really with OTC, bilateral, opaque, and they're a vested interest in maintaining that in many commodity markets. But as time erodes and, time evol- and, and we evolve as a marketplace, transparency in price is extremely important to commoditize the market, right? Um, and that means we can bring more diverse participation in the market, more price discovery. Um, you then can harness the power of cap- capital markets to get into finance. Um, they can hold it as an asset on the balance sheet if there's an independent mark on which to value it. So it changes the game um, as far as, we shouldn't probably call it a game, but it changes the, um, the whole ecosystem and the landscape um, with that kind of transparency. And this has happened faster than any other commodity market that I've ever been involved in, and I'm sure most of you. Um, and because it's new and it's broad, we're able to harness the opportunity that technology brings us um, because we're not constricted by all of the structures that already exist in many other commodity markets, which is exciting. Well, exactly. And, and you know, one of the things I've always seen as perhaps a weakness of the emission offset markets is this enforced regionalization of those markets. You mentioned the EUA, for example, before, which uh, which is what shippers will need to trade starting early next year uh, for discharging cargo into the EU. Um, you know, the technology, I think one of the things that's so exciting about it is that it sort of holds out the prospect for perhaps a more globally adopted and valued product in the space. Would you agree? Yeah, look, I totally agree. And to to add on to that, the EUA market is pure carbon, okay? When we look at the voluntary carbon market, it's highly diverse. Every single project is different. A lot of the transactions have been around renewables, um, which is offsetting coal, it's offsetting diesel. Um, So it's got a a benefit, but now technology has flowed into the renewable space where the cost of renewables to be established um, as far as power generation, is now below the cost of a new coal-fired power plant. So the market's done its job to incentivize for capital flow to move to there and for innovation to drive the price down. We're currently seeing that with sequestered carbon technology, um, a lot of money flowing into it and capital to drive price down. But in between sits where I think really the, the real opportunity is, is within the voluntary carbon space, is nature-based solutions. We need to think more about sequestering carbon. And if we do that through nature-based solutions, maybe soil, uh, maybe forestry, and a whole range of different kinds of forestry, um, that sequestering also brings a diverse contribution to your ESG profile. Because each one of those projects, if you think about a forest in Kalimantan, which you protect from logging, for example, you're often mm-hmm. supporting an indigenous, indigenous community within that zone. You're supporting biodiversity within that zone. Um, you're also potentially putting in a school to support the, the community. So there's, you tick off a whole lot of the um, sustainable development goals that were established a little over five years ago by the uh, UN and World Bank. So 
the value of those to a company, uh, particularly in the commodity space, where they're normally not bad, if we think about ESG, they're normally not too bad on society, they're normally not too bad on governance, they often fall down in the environmental space. So if they're going to buy offsets to complement their own actions to reduce carbon, we're seeing a lot more interest and attention being driven towards those nature-based offsets because of the ESG profile attached to each one of them. That's interesting. That's interesting. And, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense. But as you said, the market sort of has done its job in terms of incentivizing the creation of new technologies. In fact, it's done its job to the point where to, to cycle back to the shipping market, for example, we are having discussion of everything from green ammonia to, to even things like nuclear reactor powered ship engines, <laughs> these new molten salt reactors, which are which are, are really being legitimately discussed as a as a potential power source, uh, a carbon-free power source moving forward and, and potentially introduced. So do you see this as necessarily a time-limited product in terms of voluntary offsets? Um, um, and, and is that a problem or is that just the market doing its job? No, look, I don't think they're going away. I think they're only accelerating in their contribution to our commitments to net zero, both for countries and companies' commitments to net zero. Um, what it does do, and this, this is, this is you know, the great thing we believe with price transparency, we all come from commodity markets and, and, and financial markets at Peridius. And the way we look at it is price transparency is pretty much going to drive price one way. We're seeing exponential commitments to the net zero, um, which infers a significant increase in demand for offsets um, as the adjunct to your own activities. Now, if price goes up, which we fully expect it to, I mean, at the moment, nature-based solutions are, say, $10, even you can get some cheaper than $10, while the EUA market is trading it, to keep it in dollar terms, around 70 US. I mean, the gap between the two is, is ridiculous. And there's no SDGs or ESG attached to that EUA market. So while they're not fungible, um, you know, for, in freight terms, it's like sort of talking about tanker rate versus a cape rate, right? I mean, it's, it's freight, but it's not fungible. Um, but we see that the gap is far too great. So we expect global companies particularly to, to move more to the nature base. Now, if the price goes up, and this is where it becomes even more important, price goes up, transparency is there, you can then budget on whether you need to use offsets or you're going to accelerate your own decarbonisation. Because if you have to spend $100 to offset, that's a hell of an incentive to really turbo inject your own uh, decarbonisation as best you can. So the, the relative value of going down, you know, ammonia fuel, which you mentioned, green hydrogen, LNG, and have technology flood to that, solu to that solution or that problem statement, um, it's all part of the same ecosystem. But it, we believe it hinges heavily on price transparency. I just want to come back to what I guess there'll be people listening going, what do you mean on, in January that I'm going to have to be part of this EU scheme? Um, <laughs> So the EU ETS is obviously a well-traded market and there's nearly 12.4 million lots traded in 2020 um, and a huge price movement in that since 2017, having jumped from seven euros and, as you said earlier, Andrew, 45 euros now in the market. I just wanted to go, you're, you're a shipping company. I, I know I have to do this program. How does that program work and who, who are each side and what's being mandated by the EU? Um, first and foremost, you're going to have to look at your own carbon footprint, um, and that's going to that's really your baseline, right? You need to understand exactly what your your fuel burn is and what what that relates to as far as your carbon 
emissions, that's going to give you the number that you are then going to have to mitigate. Um, there's a number of different ways to do that. The EUA market's not one that we're currently active in. Um, it's it's pretty tra it's very transparent. Um, I think this is why we've seen the financial markets chase it very hard. They can see what's coming. Um, they're already in there. They've been a heavy participant that has driven this price up from, as you mentioned, seven to forty-five, because they can see this demand coming in twenty-two. Um, so they're getting on the front foot. So I would I would thoroughly encourage everyone who's exposed to having to offset that EU in the EUA market to really develop an understanding of it and as best you can um, get yourself covered as quick as possible because I think this is also only going one way as well. Um, the, unfortunately, you can't use the, for, the, for Europe, for Europe here, you can't use the EUA, uh, non-EUA market, so you can't go into the voluntary carbon market. Um, but, you know, what's the space? I mean, China is clearly sitting... Well, exactly. exactly. I was going to say that the biggest step forward would be the allowance of, of essentially fungibility in these markets, wouldn't it? So, um, Yeah, ab um, absolutely. Um, but other, market, other markets will accept um, carbon offsets from the voluntary carbon space, right? So it'll be, we, we have to wait and see where China goes on this, but they're keeping a very close eye on the evolution of the market. Um, but it, it, again being able to harness the power of capital markets in the voluntary carbon market space um, with that transparency will allow other jurisdictions to look at it differently to the way the EUA has, as the EU has looked at backing the EUA market as the only ticket. Yeah. And the, the EUA market obviously will affect people who are outside of Europe as well coming in. And if you look at the facts coming out in 2019, two thirds of shipping emissions in the EU came from extra EU voyages. That's well, exactly exporting exactly. or importing, and you know, no surprise there. The 60% of EU trade is without you know outside of the trading <laughs> block. Um, the majority being container ships uh, yeah. on that. So this is definitely going to be something which is going to impact more and more people when this legislation comes in for for shipping as such a, a global industry. Without yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the old George Bush quote: "Most of our exports come from overseas." Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, look, the, the and the other thing too is is this is a this marketplace is constantly evolving. It's highly dynamic, so it's very exciting to be involved in, right? So it's a great challenge for people to get their head around and, and get a feel for, right? So I thoroughly encourage it. I'm passionate about it. We're all all of us who are in it are passionate about it. Um, but the thing too is don't try and the freight market should also be very wary of trying to do things like the old days of biodiesel and splash and dash and, and play games around it because the EU is on top of that, as are other markets. Yeah. So you can't actually think you're going to take a cargo of soybeans from Brazil, drop into a port in Morocco, chuck a couple of beans off, and then only pay for the Morocco. <laughs> and Morocco European, yeah. Right? I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, same yeah. thing with your ballast leg. You can't think you're going to go and you know, make a close port call outside of the EU um, and chuck something on and, and call that your ballast leg done. Well, well exactly. I mean, I think modern technology pretty much prohibits that anyway, given the fact that uh, that uh, it's pretty hard to escape uh, escape vessel tracking these days. Well, look, on that note, I think anyone who is interested in the work Veridios is doing and harnessing the power of their own proprietary AI to, uh, to bring transparent valuations to voluntary carbon markets should contract uh, Andrew directly. You can also contact us at FIS, where we have recently set up our own emissions desk. Um, and this is certainly a market we look forward to doing more business in. And uh, Andrew, thank you very, very much for walking us through it. Pleasure. Thank you. Fun. <laughs>